I don't want a pickle. I just want to ride on my motorcycle. All right, and it's Nokomoto episode 32. We just enjoyed another one of our 300 days of sunshine in northern Colorado, and let's talk bikes. I'm your host, MotoGP, and with me is your other host, Swiggy. Yo. Okay, I'm going to remind everyone you can send us an email at nokomotopodcast at gmail.com and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever. And don't forget, if you leave us an amusing review and send us an email, you could do best or worst bike. That's true. Speaking of best and worst bike in the world this week, I think we're going to start the show with that this time. And you have worst bike in the world, right? I do. Actually, let's also add in our normal disclaimer. Don't get your feelings hurt if you disagree with the best or the worst bike in the world. There'll be a new one next week, and it's just a fun way to look at some bikes that you might not normally take a second look at. All right, so with that, you've got worst bike, and let's reveal it. The 1988 BMW K1. Okay, so I've admired this bike in the privacy of my own bedroom in the past and been pretty actually blown away by what this bike is and what it does. So I'm super excited we're finally talking about this. Okay, so you really need to know kind of where BMW was in 1998 Mm -hmm. to really understand what this bike is, why it is the way it is. And why it's a total piece of shit. Because BMW makes some pretty great bikes. Okay. So, in 1998, BMW was doing okay. But they were kind of in a position, not as good a position, but kind of in a similar position to, say, Harley Davidson is now. Where they've got some good sales going. Mm -hmm. But they're still just making opposing cylinder um, air-cooled twins. Yeah. And then just keep making those bikes. And they're kind of in a bit of a they're in a bit of a sticky situation because all of the excitement in the motorcycle industry is now evolving rapidly and everyone's falling in love with the GSXR, with the GPZ900, with all the stuff Honda's putting out. It's becoming very obvious that liquid-cooled inline 4 bikes are hot shit. Yeah. And everyone's making it. But they still are hot shit. Yeah, of course. So BMW is thinking, well, we've got we're we've got two people nagging us. We've got the traditionalists that want us to keep doing what we're doing and stick to our roots. And then you've got the younger crowd and the new emerging crowd who all are after these sport bikes. Right, because you have to think, like, at this time, a lot of what BMW was doing was still, like, the Slash 5 series. Right. That Yeah, if you just Google a picture of, you know, if you just Google BMW Slash 5 or even more, just go BMW Cafe Racer, because it's a common Cafe Racer build, you know, any bike from the Slash 5 series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's just what you're going to wind up seeing. And that lineage of bikes just 
comes right up and smashes into the back end of when this thing came out. So it was right. a very big change for BMW. So everyone loves to take old BMWs and restore them or to chop them up into cafe racers. And there's a whole bunch of them because up until this point, BMW just said, all we're going to make are these mid, mid-range mid displacement air-cooled twins. But they really had to kind of work around it and and start evolving the company. Yeah. Now, fun factoid to, to make people think you know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. BMW stands for Bavarian Motorworks. Yes. Now, Bavaria is quite often uh, responsible for being the fun police in Germany. Yeah. So BMW decides, well, we need to start capturing this younger crowd, but we don't want to piss off the traditionalists too much, mm. but we're going to make a superbike. Right. Now there's a big problem here because in Germany, BMW has and this and also keep in mind this is fi- more than 15 years before the uh or what's it called? The um of oh, the gentleman's agreement. Before the gentleman's agreement. And BMW at this point has already entered, has already voluntarily stated that they are going to restrict their bikes to 100 horsepower or less. So, well, you know, and there's there is a good reason for that. Like I said, you, you know, you don't you won't notice anything missing under 90 oh sorry over under over yeah all you need is 90 horsepower you're not going to really miss anything if you know until you you go below that number if you want a really hot fast bike you're really probably only needing 90 horsepower to just be insanely irresponsible on the roads to the point that you're not just like pissing off old ladies with the way you ride you're pissing off experienced motorcyclists with the way that you ride with 90 right. horsepower. But this or is you're in capable the age, of doing so. But this is in the age of the GPZ 900R and the Jixxer 750 and the Jixxer 1000. And they're trying to go up against it. Now, up until now, BMW was like, well, this is great because we get to take the moral high ground. But we also don't produce any bikes that have more than 100 horsepower right now. So it's win-win. But now they want to make a superbike. Right. So they've got to find a way to make this work because they're going to stick to that. So this is an in, a liquid-cooled inline four that only makes 100 horsepower. So they're trying to think about how they're going to make this work. And with some fairly, fairly stereotypical German logic, they realize, well... In order to get a good top speed, you need some horsepower, but more importantly, weight doesn't matter. And what you really need is, if you don't care about acceleration, but what you really need is a really aerodynamic bike. So, they say, well, how can we keep this kind of German and keep its identity while we're basically trying to emulate what the Japanese are doing? Yeah. And they say, well, this bike is basically going to be built to crush it on the Autobahn. 
Okay. Which it looks like it does. Sort of. So they did a lot of really weird things. First of all, they didn't go with plastic for the fairings. Oh, no. The fairings are fiberglass. Okay. Which adds quite a bit of weight over just having some molded plastic and probably came over from from the racing division at the time. Mm -hmm. So that added quite a bit of weight. And they wanted this bike to be really stiff and really, really stable at high speed. So they bulked up the frame a lot. Right. And they also kept the single-sided swing arm and didn't opt for a chain or a belt. Right. Well, yeah, BMW has always been shaft drive since like the 20s, since, you know, since the end of World War One. Right. So they've kept all of those. So this bike now wet, this bike weighs 580 pounds. And now I'm no, I didn't know it was that heavy. Like I'm a lot of people are just can't deal in the sport bike realm. Anything over 400 pounds. I maintain that 500 pounds is a totally reasonable weight. And around what you would expect for like a Gixxer 1000 at the time. But we've got a bit of extra weight going on here and it's also a shaft drive. So at best, you're getting 75 horsepower to the rear wheel on this thing. You think it's... Was it making 100 top? Like peak at horsepower crank. at the crank? I, you're probably getting at least 85 under ideal conditions. I mean, it's going to sap power, lot. but no more than 15%. It's like 25%. Is it's, it really taking that much? It's a lot. Wow. Well, even a chain is like 9 to 11%. I thought a chain took more like 7 but It's a lot. Okay. In any case, this bike weighs a lot, and it's relying on its extremely low uh, drag coefficient to be able to do 140 to 150 miles an hour. That's questionable at that much horsepower with well, how no, much it weighs. But yeah, it's, yeah entirely, it's entirely down to the aerodynamics, which will become a problem later on. Yeah, and, the, and that does explain the kind of cool but also completely insane front wheel hub well there's also something else there that we'll get into is it the air venting to cool the brakes well here's the thing they've gone with the fiberglass fairings and for some reason they decided to over engineer the engine even though they knew that they were going to limit it to 100 horsepower so tuners could play with it, and it could become this sort of underground thing as well. But they, so they could well, have they their were cake and do eat that. it too. This is a big theme with this bike. Well, if they were going to, if that was their intention, for some reason they still sent it off to America, limited to a hundred horsepower. And once you had all the carb emissions equipment on it in California, it then only made ninety-five horsepower because they right. couldn't be bothered to unrestrict it for the foreign market. Right, but. It makes 100 horsepower, and it only revs to 8,500 RPM because they've just limited it. Right. So it doesn't have the best thermal efficiency. Mm. On top of that, they've gone with this crazy aerodynamic design, which doesn't allow for a lot of airflow inside the bike around the engine. Right. So when they first designed it, it got so hot that it was burning the test rider's asses. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, because this engine's really low and really far forward. So for the heat to make it up to the seat. Well, it's all insulated by the fiberglass and it's all sealed up. Yeah, there's nowhere else the heat could go. It all has to eventually make it that way. Now, you'll notice if you look at the logo, there's that tiny little K and the big one. Uh And on the other side, it's a big K and a tiny one. Okay. Now, so the reason the logo's all wonky like that is because those big, those giant vents Mm -hmm. right below the tank... Those were added in at the last second. Yeah, it's not to bring air in. It's to let heat out. Right. (laughs) Now, this was a problem. This was still a problem because the seat still got too hot if you rode for any length of time under 50 miles an hour. Uh Uh-huh. But on top of that, it didn't really get rid of the whole problem because additionally... The way the aerodynamics are set up, there is like this pocket of air around your legs because you're trying to take all the drag of the rider out of the equation. So you're creating this little bubble around the rider. So the hot air that spilled out of the vents just stuck to your legs. Mm. And if you still rode under 50 miles an hour, it still burnt your ass. Eventually, they had to release a thermal blanket that went under the seat as an option to solve the problem. Wow. Wow. Yeah. You've definitely looked into this bike a lot more than I did. (laughs) This was on my best worst bike list to use in the future, but I didn't know where to place it exactly or exactly the narrative to weave around it. (laughs) But these are things I did not yet know. So on top of that, it makes horrible, it has horrible fuel efficiency because it's this large displacement engine that's limited so it only gets about 40 miles to the gallon in any conditions really anything other than doing 55 miles perfectly level this thing gets no fuel efficiency whatsoever okay so now they've had to do a few other things because they wanted it to be really stable on the autobahn they took kind of the standard dimensions for a sport bike and they lengthened the wheelbase. Right, because of the aerodynamics. You want to have it long, and you want to have it taper backwards more evenly. Hence mm-hmm. these ridiculous, like, I don't know, just the giant hips that this bike has. I don't know how yeah. else you put it. That's got to be for drag coefficient. There's no other reason oh, to yeah. have that. But it's the same shape as on the Honda NR. Yes. Yeah. So, it gets even better. When they increased the wheelbase, and with all the weight on the bike, it just handled like a dog. So they wanted to make it handle a bit better. So what they did, and this is really good. If you look at this bike, there's something else about the proportions that's just not right. Um, Is it that the tail section comes up as high as the gas tank? So they're trying to trick you into thinking you're going to fly off the back of this? But we'll get to that later. Okay. But there's one thing that you'll realize what else makes this seem horrible, which is it's an 18-inch rear wheel and a 17-inch front wheel. Oh, yeah. You know what? I guess I didn't notice because the front wheel is so enclosed in that hub. Right. 
So they wanted to make it handle better at low speeds. So they made the front wheel smaller. On top of that, it also helped with the um, with the shaft effect. Right. Because you know how, like, even on, on the Norwich, if you just rev the bike in neutral, because you've got that you've got that shaft going front to back Mm -hmm. as soon as any weight lifts off the front and you're applying you're accelerating a lot it kind of jerks the bike off to one side because you've got that rotating mass yes that's spinning that's speeding up so the bike is actually like dipping down forwards Mm -hmm. because the rear wheel is higher the rear axle is higher than the front axle so whenever you slam on the brakes You've got a smaller front wheel with a smaller contact patch, and it just gets driven into the ground. So the forks just dive super hard. So this is actually one point in history where a BMW could have really benefited from the wishbone suspension. Yes. So on top of all of that, it's got those... because. They they were they were kind of marketing this as a sport tourer. But because they're restricted to the one hundred horsepower and they're trying to make it as fast as possible, so aerodynamics is everything. They've got those little flares on the tail, which they had to put in. So it's a sport tourer that you cannot put panniers on. Yeah, but the thing is, because it has these things, you'd think they would have put little doors in them and made it open up, and they could have at least been extra glove boxes. That They are. Oh, they did? Okay, yeah. good. Yeah, so that's like your entire space. Now, if you want to, you can take the the rear cowling off, and you can either have yeah, a, It looks like you could fit a fucking gallon of milk back there. <laughs> So you can fit well I think uh one of the writers who who wrote it when it was released said you could basically fit an over a, a rain suit in it with the pants in one and the the over jacket in the other and that was about all you could fit in there. Well okay, but you know what that is a lot more than you'd get under the seat or under a real rear cowl on any other standard sport bike or sport right. tour. So Okay, but you could also that rear cowling could come off, and then you could put a pannier on it, or uh, a top box. You could put a pillion on it, or a top box. You couldn't have a top box and a rear pillion seat. And if you put the top box on it, or had a person on the back of it, well, you could sit the person on top of the the top (laughs) box. But if you had a person on the back, or you had the top box. It would just trash the aerodynamics, and you would get even worse fuel efficiency, and it would feel even worse. I'm trying to even understand how the passenger's legs fit around these aerodynamic, I don't know what the word is for them, this, these. Well, that's about where your panniers would be, and your leg would just kind of, your knee would kind of go around it. I guess so. I guess I I just sort of imagine someone kneeling with a leg on either one of them, holding onto the, holding onto the rider. Right. So, in summary, this bike can go fast, but it weighs close to 600 pounds. It has a claimed 0 to 60 of 4 seconds. Yeah. I suspect in reality it's much worse. Right. 
it overheats on at anything under 50 miles an hour. It gets horrible fuel efficiency. It can go fast, but it can't accelerate fast, so you can't even drag race it. It's got some very interesting color schemes. Okay, this is- hold on. I want to defend its styling a little bit, because you have to remember this is 88 to 92 or whatever, right? Right. It's, you know, it it's sort of got a square headlight, but it's not full-on 80s square headlight. The, the headlight's it's still all incorporated. It's very 80s, but it's kind of one of the rare examples of what we do like about the 80s, right? It's somewhere in between an NR750 and a GPZ900. It's somewhere in between that. And it doesn't do its look elegantly, but it does do something. That's that an I'm, understatement. <laughs> <laughs> it does do something that I I want to talk about it when I talk about the next bike, which is it. In the 80s, there's this idea that even if you weren't the pinnacle of technology, you sort of had to look the part anyway, right? right? So it looks really sort of technical and advanced while still having the very 90s, you know, full body work and everything. It's very distinct. It's very BMW, but it's also, you know, very Italian in a strange way at the same time. It's, I don't know. it has a unique look that I very much appreciate and it's almost a nineties look, but what it doesn't do is nail its own aesthetic. It doesn't totally own it in ways that, you know, bikes that might people might think are super hideous do right. Like the V max, some people, you know, love it. Some people hate it, but everyone admits that it sort of nails what it's going for. I'm going to defend this bike in the way that it looks because it's just sort of that weird, beefy, bulbous 90s sport bike thing, but in a really crazy direction. You know, mm-hmm. like if you like, if you compare that 90s sport bike look to um, Sharp Cheese, you know, th- this is sort of a Stilton, right? This is a little mm-hmm. bit out there. This is not everyone's cup of tea. But if you've sort of conditioned yourself or grown up liking that full body 90 sport bike look, you're going to love this bike. And you probably hated it when it came out, but your your palate sort of becomes sophisticated enough that by now you get it and you're into it. <laughs> okay. Okay. So how much in 1988, given that you could buy like a fairly well optioned out ZZR 600 for seven grand. How much do you think this bike cost? I bet this was every bit of nine and a half thousand dollars in 1988, 89. This bike was $13,500. What? What? And somehow BMW managed to sell almost 7,000 of them, which, by the way, bravo yeah wow that is expensive but nobody really wants to kind of admit that they had one of these so occasionally you'll see some dealer or some consignment dealer 
offering one of these for like $10,000, but it's just ridiculous. Like, yeah, people want these the same way that, you know, fishermen collect mutated lobsters. Like it's a curiosity. (laughs) It's, yeah, you know that is a great way to put it. It's a curiosity. Yeah, that's a great. You could you can own it because it's weird, right? And it's still it's a usable motorcycle. The problem is it's not everything it was cracked up to be, and for way too much money, right? And there are inherent flaws in the design, and you know you can you can forgive that in a lot of ways. But when it costs thirteen and a half thousand dollars in nineteen eighty nine, and BMW has pumped it up as you know, as the ultimate sport touring motorcycle, yeah, that's pretty bad. Hmm. Okay, I think we may have to close this out. Okay, so uh, yeah, nineteen eighty eight to nineteen ninety two was when they stopped making this, right? Right. Um, yeah. So 1988, 1992, BMW K1, worst bike in the world this week, but still better than a car, I guess. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to, uh, to best bike. And the best bike in the world this week is the 1983 Honda FC50, otherwise known as the Honda Beat. I know this bike. So Uh this is a wonderful, wonderful little thing. Now, okay, you're going to be asking yourself when you look at the picture of this, why, MotoGP? I'm just going to sit back and let you monologue here because I already know everything (laughs) there is to know about this bike. This bike is amazing. So it's quirky and it's unusual. But it being quirky and unusual isn't what makes it the best bike in the world this week. There's a specific characteristic of this that I absolutely love, and that's really what we're going to expand on. But in the meantime, let's break down what this is. So it's a 49cc scooter, and it's small like a 49cc scooter. It's got standard wheels on it like a 50cc scooter would have. It's 1983, so it's got the drum brakes and everything like that. And I think they're even just single leading. No, as I look at it, no, they're they're at least double leading, but they're small little disc brakes. But whatever, it's a really lightweight thing. I didn't even really bother bringing up a spec sheet or memorizing the specs on this because it's honestly not that important. All you need to know is that it's a 49cc two-stroke, and this is a Japanese domestic market. Sort of. So the first thing you notice when you look at this scooter is the insane bodywork. It's got a it's got this front fairing, like full fairing on the front of it that kind of looks like the rear end of an NR750, or maybe even a really miniaturized version of the front grille of a 2018 Mustang GT. It's really strange. And it has two headlights, like the front grille of a Mustang, right? 
Let's not forget the tinted windshield at knee level. Yeah, in front of your knees, there is a tinted windshield. The windshield stops probably a couple inches below the grips. It's got some more lights on the steering head unit, which holds um, all your instruments. You know, standard mirrors, nothing crazy there. It's got little turn signals on the front of it and the rear. It's got some cool 80s sort of uh, graphics on it that aren't really that offensive. They're pretty good. I love the vents right around the forks. Right. That don't connect to any kind of engine work whatsoever, and yet still it has turn signal stocks on it. Right. Well, look, it has those vents for a very good reason. Because it holds a radiator in the front there, right behind the grill, just like a car would. And the reason it has the radiator is because this is a liquid-cooled 49cc two-stroke, which is radical and weird and quirky and fun, right? And that means this little scooter revs up to like eight, eight and a half thousand RPM. Which is why it makes something like a very impressive, like somewhere between five and seven horsepower or something like that. It makes more power than you would expect it to, but it's still, it's still not crazy. But that means that this little, <laughs> this little bike can get up to like 35 pretty comfortably, which is a lot faster than you would expect a 50cc scooter to be able to do. Now, it only has a single seat. There's no passenger seat, and the little like luggage rack is a total option. It wasn't really designed to be practical for having a passenger or having luggage. It was meant to be the hottest shit 50cc scooter ever conceived of, and it was. This was a statement. If all your buddies had 50cc scooters, you showed up with this in 1983 and your friends were fucking blown away. Now let's get into my favorite, favorite thing about this and what really sets it apart. And it's a combination of controls and the dash. Let's bring up a picture of the dash, which we're going to have to include in the pictures of this bike in the show notes. So the dash of this is very DeLorean looking. And so you've got a uh, a pretty nice set of instruments for a 50cc scooter. You've got engine temperature, you've got a fuel gauge, you've got a speedo and a tack. You've got a turn signal button, you've got an oil pressure light, you've got a high beam light. Um, the tack is very important on this bike. The tack is super crucial because... The speedo, uh, sorry, the RPM numbers are just white until you get to five and a half thousand RPM. And then the numbers and all the individual RPM number markings turn green. And then at ten and a half thousand, sorry, not nine and a half thousand RPM, it goes up to ten and a half thousand RPM on a 50cc scooter. It's crazy. So, and then it goes red in your red zone, right? But in the background, there's a little grid and a totally fictitious torque and horsepower graph from just some imaginary dyno reading. And there's a little red light, 
where peak horsepower is on this thing. So now we need to sidetrack to something else. The fact that it's a two stroke with a tuned exhaust on it. Now, two stroke motors don't have valves like four strokes. And there's a certain uh, back pressure is very important to two stroke bikes. On a two stroke, you need an exhaust that at any given moment for your power needs is actually a tiny bit smaller than what would be the ideal pipe size for a four stroke because you need to restrict it a little bit in order to get the best possible performance. So that plays into this a lot. So when you're just putting around at low speed on this thing, the exhaust is tuned to be that way. Now, a lot of two stroke motors have a valve in the exhaust. So when you get it to higher RPM, it unrestricts the exhaust, allowing for you to have better performance at the higher RPM because you need a different rate of back pressure to operate the engine with its best power at the higher RPM because all the dynamics of that airflow have changed. Now, normally, this just happens automatically. Or There's you just a... have a bike with eight or nine or maybe 16 gears and you just operate in that very narrow power band. Right, but this only has a two-speed automatic because it's right. a scooter. So when you get to 5,500 RPM on this bike, there is a pedal on the floor that you press with your foot, and it opens up that valve in the exhaust. And then that little light that's put on the top of the fictitious horsepower band on the fake dyno reading on the back of your um, RPM gauge, your tachometer lights up to let you know that you've just engaged full power mode. It's so <laughs> wonderful. But then it does another thing that's even just as good, but not as sung about when you get above 29 miles per hour on this, the speed gauge the numbers the numbers are marked in red and a little light comes on with the with the with the words next to it speed warning yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh it's so good so what this scooter has done has taken the experience of a 50cc scooter which is really only just barely manageable in traffic and changed it into this sport experience by by taking a mechanism that is normally automated and more complicated they've simplified it and put the control of that in the user's hands allowing them to feel more engaged and like they're unlocking some sort of capability from this machine and there's a sort of a reassurance that you're getting everything out of it that you can be getting and then by telling you that going faster than 29 miles per hour is dangerous, you know, <laughs> it just makes you feel like what you're doing is a lot more. And really, the whole feature is basically manually operated two-stroke VTEC. Yes. Well, oh, it doesn't change. No, no, because VTEC is a is a is a valve timing thing. That's different, right? But, but you're but you're mo you're modifying the exhaust port to change the tuning. It's a similar concept. 
yeah. Yeah, I guess so, because the valves don't work the same way a four-stroke does. Or similar to, yeah. like, um, similar to, like, Yamaha's, you know, cross-flowing carburetors on, on the V-Max. Exactly. I was about to say, this is the V-Max of 50cc scooters. That's what it is. You're engaging a sort of V-Max-ish sort of mode on it. It's more similar to that, even though it happens on the complete opposite side of the well, engine. Honda even called it, it was called a V-Tax, I think. Yeah, this is the V-Tax system. Exactly. It's hilarious. And it's just a simplification of what was a very common system on 70s two-stroke dirt bikes, right? Right. And so why is this significant? Why am I in love with this so much? So through the 50s and 60s, nothing really changed on bikes, right? Honda was seen as very progressive for adding electric start, which is something that, you know, Ford put on Model Ts in the 40s, right? It, um there there was, you know, technology sort of slowly leaking into bikes through the 50s and 60s, but it was all sort of just really more just making the machines more refined and better metallurgy and, and tighter tolerances was really all that was going on. And then in the 70s, there's a big wave of new technology, disc brakes and, and you know, more valves and all sorts of stuff, right? right. And then it flatlines again through the 80s. And they just sort of go through another 50s, 60s sort of era of just making everything tighter and more reliable and better, but not actually more, you know, complicated technology wise, right? A bike from 1989 really doesn't have anything on it that a bike from 1971, it's just, you know, it might have electronic ignition or something like that, but that's really stuff that was coming in in the 70s anyway, you know, mm. it's just the bikes were just becoming tighter, more reliable and better, but there was nothing really new coming into play, not in any big meaningful way. And it's really not until you get to the late eighties with the GPZ 900, things start picking up again. And, but even, you know, past like 95 things flatline it's, and it's not until then it picks up again. And then technology flatlines again from basically like 2003 until now. Right. Because now, you know, around like 2003, everything started going fuel injected and whatever. So that's around the time that that fuel injection ABS just started becoming standard. Everyone was catching up and that became the new bar. Right. So the bar had been set at this point. Right. And everyone recognizes 80 styling from a mile away. Right. And people don't recognize 90 styling as much. I do. And I love it. But everyone really can spot 80 styling a mile away. And I have a theory that the reason is, is that technology is sort of flatlined. So there's this great thing that everything in the 80s did, which was it had to appear futuristic through design rather than just technological innovation. Right. It had to really look the business, you know? Mm -hmm. And... If you if you look at this bike, what it's doing is it's taking 70s technology, but it's reconfigurating it in design, right? It's like, okay, let's take this exhaust valve system and we'll just change what that is to the user. Right. Let's put it in their hands and we'll change the dynamic of the experience. We won't change the technology because we don't have any new technology to play with. So what we need to do is rethink how this scooter is in its entire design 
to try to bring something new to the table rather than just slap on new technology. So you get this radiator stuck into the front of it, right? You get a liquid-cooled two-stroke, which isn't unheard of, but, you know, um, you get the idea of just throwing away all the uh, practicality of the scooter for this sort of sport experience. You get the just the whole aesthetic. There's something, like I said, very DeLorean about the... Uh, about the gauges and there's something very mustang or even like 80s ferrari testarossa about the front grille there's also and there's also something very vaporwave about the the torque curve on top of the slanted grid yeah there is <laughs> yeah it's wonderful yeah something a little tronish as well it, it's all very like oh this isn't computerized but it's hinting at some sort of idea of computerized like even, even the angles on the on the on the dash are almost kind of american muscle car-esque like it, there's all these weird little styling elements right and it all makes the bike seem a lot more than it is in actuality and in function Right. So you're getting a lot more out of this than you would out of a 50 cc scooter, even though you're really not. Right. Right. And we're sort of in the middle of another flat spot of technology and bikes right now. When I think of things that are being thrown onto bikes in terms of technology now, it's really just. Well, it's like the it's like the Goldwing and Apple CarPlay. Right. Yeah. But, like it's not really a function of the bike. It's just something thrown onto it. Right. It's yeah. it, it's, it's something you can do with a Cena or any other uh, Bluetooth headset in your helmet with voice commands, and they've just put a display on it, and your phone hooks up to the bike instead. Right. So in the last episode, I was talking about how you know we sort of hinted like you know function is form in terms of bikes. Well, that makes a lot of sense when you're innovating and you're going for a performance and whatever. But what if you're in a situation where that's all been very stable? And in fact, you're seeing like manufacturers like Honda go backwards in performance and a little backwards in technology, mm -hmm. trying to make more middle of the range bikes that are a lot more suited for the average consumer rather than you know, someone who's been into bikes for a long time and then going for the most exciting thing that they can. You can't get people entering the market at that very top premium level, right? Right. So what is happening in bikes right now that's technologically advanced? Well, one thing we've got is all the different computer stuff with the rider modes, right? Mm -hmm. All the traction control and everything. So I thought if you were going to take this concept of simplifying a technology or swapping it around to create a more engaging user experience and make something seem more futuristic than it is right now. I think I've got it. Okay. So when you buy an ultra premium bike right now, like, you know, an R one M or the, 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 the newest flashiest version of the CBR 1000 double R, right. They've got like upwards of seven different levels of traction control and engine braking and, you know, different ECU maps that you can swap between and everything, mm -hmm. right? Well, you have to pull over for those and, you know, switch the bike off, switch it back on, change your modes, and then go off riding again. Uh, that's all, not really. Well, you, no, you don't have to, but that's how they make it 
that's how they do it, right? Because it's, it's supposed to be track-oriented and everything like that. But there's no reason you can't do it on the fly. They do it on the fly in MotoGP, right? So what if you had a bike that was a little bit more middle of the road, like a CBR 500R? And instead of nine different rider modes, it just had two different ECU maps. And so maybe next year, kill switch, there's another button that looks very dangerous in flight control. And it's just, and, did, and it press says, it and the dash goes from like all blue to red. Exactly. And it engages a different map and it gives you a little bit more power, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got the regular mode, which is maybe a little underpowered than the competition. And then you got the sport mode, which is just a little bit more than the competition, right? Mm-hmm. So you get someone to you know that has an ECU map that they can change on the fly and engage more power. Now you might think, well, that's cheesy. People are going to see right through it. You know, they're going to know that the CBR one thousand double R has a bajillion different fuel mappings and whatever, and you're getting some cheap down version. No, they're not. This sport mode button that I'm devising has existed in every BMW since like 1987, right? Watch any episode of Top Gear when they're looking at the new crazy cars. And there's literally a button that says sport and it's red inside the car somewhere that you press to engage that other fuel mapping. And all it does is switch the ratio on the overdrive to the default. It basically just turns the overdrive off. Right. But you can do it with an ECU flash or whatever. There's there's mm-hmm. very many different ways to make that happen. But it's a simplification of technology as it would be put into bikes. And, you know, you can pay crazy amounts for all the different ways you can adjust it. But what if you're what if you're just taking a street bike, not a track bike, just a regular everyday commuter, but you give it a little zazz? With this little ECU, right? It's a more engaging user experience. It's more fun. And especially the way they took this like fake digital display with the little light in it to let you know, like, we're in peak power mode, right? And and what if your bike tells you, hey, you're going too fast? Like, it doesn't matter what the speed is. The machine you're operating is telling you you're going too fast. Like, that's cool, right? That's exciting. That's engaging. And it can turn something really boring into something really exciting. I wonder... Because, you know, speed is relative, right? If it's your first motorcycle, 75 miles per hour feels like warp speed, right? Yeah. So I wonder I wonder if you could tie this in. If you could tie this in, you know, like with the tiered licensing system where maybe somebody got like a CB, a CBR 650 F as their first bike. And then they finally pass their their A2 and they're allowed to ride it at full speed yeah so before that they have to have in a restricted mode which you can just do electronically to limit it and then all of a sudden you you get your license you go to the dealer and they they plug in the computer and they activate the full list of rider modes to enable more power Mm -hmm. and then you know, you're riding it around uh, as a as a younger rider with a restricted license, and you can switch between like blue and green, where blue is your your eco mode, and green is 
the maximum your legal maximum amount of power you're legally allowed to have. And then you unlock the additional mode. And as soon as you put it into sport mode, everything just turns red. So I was thinking about this and I had a very similar thought, but it was a little bit more fancy, um, but essentially accomplishing the same thing. What I would say is what if you bought, what if you bought again, let's say um, whatever Harley is going to replace the Sportster line with, or, you know, a CBR 500 R or some sort of middle of the road option. Right. And the bike came with its own app. Right. There's an app for the bike. Mm -hmm. And rather than have to purchase a Ram mount or something, there's a little square in the dash that you can just put your phone into. Right. And there'll be a place to charge it in there, whatever. And it's weatherproof and all of that. You'll have to build the basically the Ram mount system into that slot. But right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But just give that to the user because that's something that they want anyway. Right. So the phone becomes your digital display and the app and everything. And you can still make it. There's a way to make this so it still does, you know, your Pandora to your helmet and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. But what one of the things that this app will do, besides be any kind of, you know, uh, instrumentation that you want to change around or whatever. One thing it'll have that you can't turn off is it will sense what the speed limit is in every area that you are. And then flash red and warn you when you're exceeding it. That's which can be sold as a safety item, but also makes it a much more you know dangerous feeling experience. Because everyone knows, like it doesn't matter. Even if you're driving normal, you're gonna go five over or whatever, right? In your car, or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, what if you've got this bike that your friends might have told you was slow, but every time you're riding it, it's telling you like, "Whoa, you're going way too fast," right? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, that's actually that's an interesting idea. If you could. If you could customize the not not the actual you know, the, the performance, the suspension or the accessories on your bike, but if you could if you could customize the UI of it, the, mm -hmm. the actual interface yeah. where you could have like a color gradient that the dash changed to based on how fast you were going. Oh, yeah, so it goes from, like, blue at, at a red light, slowly through greens and yellows, working its way up to red. Like, orange and red. Yeah. Where, like, red, like, a certain red is 75 miles an hour, and, like, the palest, lightest green possible is zero to five miles an hour. Yeah, and then, like, when you get, like, ten over the speed limit, like, the red just starts flashing and there's a skull and crossbones behind it or, or whatever, right? Yeah. Right. Th that takes what's normally a pedestrian experience and puts it in your hand. And then you've got this, like, on your, you know, this, like, jet fighter-looking thing. Like, what if it even had, like, you know, this sport mode? You, so you couldn't accidentally hit it, Right. You know, Honda would Honda would say, "Okay, we've put this like you know, like a like a flight safety cover over it." You know, so you have to flick <laughs> up the red thing and then hit the button. And Honda would say, "Like, oh, we put that there so you can't accidentally hit it in traffic, but it's really only there to make you feel cooler when you engage the sport mode." Right. Yeah. So you're almost you're almost um, customizing it the same way that 
you would customize the desktop on your phone. Right. Or, or you know, if, if you like, if you build your own computer or if you, I don't know, what would be another good example? Right. But like, the, the whole point is we, we could talk about a million different ways this is possible, but the idea of taking the super premium technology and then creating a budget version of it, which at least appears to be a significant upgrade, even though it's actually just taking a a a part of a premium feature and then making it an an affordable way to be incorporated into a budget bike mm-hmm. to make that a more engaging experience right. to be like oh the fa- the fancy bikes have multiple ECU mappings well so do I right and you know it's really fun to hit this button and then go into sport mode right and like all oh, the bikes tell me i'm going faster or, or whatever it is that it's doing or it's telling me that i'm speeding or it's 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 whatever or you know the you know the 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 fancy bikes have a full color display that you can do whatever with well i've got a full color display now it's my phone right it doesn't even cost the manufacturer anything to do with it right it's a step down it's like oh you just stick your phone in here it'll accept phone sizes of all different kinds you know it's in there it's safe it's weatherproof but You've got this app for the bike, and so that'll function as your display. And then people are like, oh, you know, my phone works with this bike. That's that's new. That's technology. That that works. You right? also get to like hold out your. You can also just hold out your phone like a Power Ranger. Act, you know, yeah. activating your your power coin. Right, <laughs> Ninja Zord. <laughs> Ninja Zord. Well, there were Ninja Zords in the second there iteration. Were. What? Yes, there were. That's but, right. Anyway, they were introduced in the first Power Rangers movie. Because remember, all the Zords got, um, all the Dino Zords got destroyed by Ivan Ooze. And then um, I can't remember who gives them the Ninja Zords. And I remember that being a big, a big plot hole. I'm like, wait a minute. You just had the Ninja Zords in reserve this whole time? Yeah. Okay. That movie went to a lot of weird places. <laughs> I don't know how the Honda FC50 got us on to Power Rangers. Oh, wait, I have a drop just for this. Completely forgot that was on my sound list. All right. So I, I don't think I have much else to say about this, except, oh, there was one other thing I wanted to say. Another reason I picked this is best. By the way, the we're still on the FC50. Yes, yeah. We went on a bit of a tangent there. Right. Another reason I picked this as best bike in the world is I've been doing a lot of bikes that were designed to appeal to non-motorcycle people and then therefore failed, right? Mm -hmm. Well, this bike was sort of designed for non-motorcycle people as well with a little bit of the automotive car look that it has on the front. But because... It was better thought out and they realized that they needed a traditional, you know, sort of scooter powertrain. But then they added in these other features that are therefore engaging for motorcyclists. It's an astounding success. Mm -hmm. Rather than try to reinvent the motorcycle, they thought, well, let's bring in some unexpected elements in a really fun, playful way. And it turns out these are functions that appeal to car drivers as well. Interestingly, this is probably one of the few times that a sort of boost function 
right or boost feature on a bike was an actual boost right because it did actually change the tuning and made it um and actually shifted the power band up in the reps yes whereas on a modern efi motorcycle really anything other than the top sport mode is just the motorcycle being gimped yes yeah that's true so it's one of the rare situations where boost is boost right and they and they kind of had to do something like that because again in the 80s because like technology flatlined it was like well let's just stick a turbo on it that's really the only way forward right turbo was everywhere everything needed a turbo or a boost mode or a hyper mode right so if you think about video game controllers you know they all like yeah the turbo buttons on the video game controllers you have turbo on the cars you have turbo actual turbos being fitted to bikes all over the place in this time so this without having to get on the turbo bandwagon managed to accomplish the same thing in a really fun way because it's not like you have a button where you're like oh i'm gonna turn on the turbo in my car no it's this whole thing that's integrated into the whole system and you can feel it kick in and it's also it's you don't opt to use the turbo or not use the turbo there's also a really subtle thing here that makes it feel really good which is even though it's really simple to operate where oh i get over 5500 rpm i push the pedal down now I have more power. Yeah, you can hit it at any time. You can hit it below that RPM, right? Which would make Even, the performance shitty. Right. So there's a sense of mastering the machine. Yeah, it's not difficult, but just the fact that it is possible to fuck it up. Yeah, you're like, it's a good thing I'm operating this because right. some idiot might fuck it up. Exactly. Yeah, it's really clever. It's really clever, and it's really fun. There's no way that, you know, even having, you know, a fast bike, if I was on one of these things, I would just feel so much satisfaction the first time I hit that button and got the boost. Like, yeah, now we're going. And it would feel so much faster than it was. It would mm-hmm. feel, there's no way I couldn't feel cool doing it. There's exactly. no way. All right, so there we go. Honda uh, 1983, Honda FC50, otherwise known as the Honda Beat. Oh, I do want to add that even though this was just a um, mainly a, a Japanese domestic market bike, they did sell some in Europe, and there are a few that I've seen in American owners' hands because there weren't like the speed restrictions. It was just at this time um, – simply displacement so you could import these and still not have to register them Mm -hmm. so there are a few rare ones of these around in the states but very few but this model did sell a bunch and to this day in the foreign market honda sells a model called the beat because this was a success it doesn't have the same features and all of that not like this old one it doesn't really look quite the same but the Honda Beat is still a pretty quick, outlandish-looking scooter to this day. So me saying this was a success, even though it didn't sell here, is not total bullshit. This is like a legendary scooter. So there we go. Honda FC50. Best bike in the world this week. Okay, so... As we were just talking about rider experiences, this is exactly why we need to fucking work for Honda. If anyone from Honda or any other major manufacturer is listening, god damn it, high res, because 
we have a lot of thoughts about user experience. Right. So at Coda this year, I rode the the dual clutch Africa Twin. Yeah. And you know, I only rode it for maybe 25 minutes. Yeah. And they kind of they the the instructors gave you a quick rundown on how it works. And when you get on it, there's kind of, there's this whole process where when to get out of neutral and to get into gear, you have to you know, you have a button that engages it. And then on top of that, you then have no shift lever and you can move up and down through the modes. And then on top of that, you also have the flappy paddles on each side. Or on the left, you have you know the thumb and the you index get the downshift thing. on one side and the up on the other for right. your thumbs, right? And as you're going through it, it's you've kind of got this plain LCD display that's that you would have on a modern sport bike, and then in one corner you've got a a letter or a number, a letter and a number that denotes the mode you're in. And the whole time you're kind of it's kind of just like wrangling a toddler and trying to keep them within this safe space to make the bike behave the way you want it to. And it's kind of confusing and you're trying to keep up with a group at the same time. And it's really not a great user experience. Now, instead of this whole system where you've just got the hand controls that you're, that you're manipulating and you're adding all this cognitive load to make it perform the way you want it to. Right. You're constantly looking down and you're trying to figure this out while trying to ride safely within a group. Yeah. Cause I want to add here, especially on the Africa twin where you've got the bark buster incorporated into the handle, looking down at it, it looks like the world's most infuriating bop it. Like it's, yeah. it's just a clusterfuck of nonsense and it's probably really easy to accidentally hit your turn signal or your horn it's just, I'm sure you get used to it, but you're not going to sell bikes on a system that, oh, well, you know, don't worry, you'll get used to it. It's got to feel good at the dealership, or why are you going to pull the trigger on buying this fucking thing? Yeah, if it takes more than five minutes to figure out, it's not a user experience you can make feel good in five to ten minutes. Like, it's not, it's not something you're going to be able to get a rider to figure out in time to make a sale. Yeah, it needs to feel good and natural by the end of the test ride. Now, if instead you went with a way more user-friendly experience where you brought back the clutch lever, but the clutch lever, all it did was it replaced the two buttons on the left handlebar to switch between the modes, Mm -hmm. and you made the dash change color based on what mode you're in so it went from blue to green to yellow to orange to red to like light red to dark red to go through you know eco normal sport one sport two sport three to change how aggressive the bike was and then you could still shift the gears with with the thumb and index buttons on the left hand side so that was the only new thing interface-wise you had to deal with. Yeah. But you also didn't have to look down at this fairly plain um, computer display 
to figure out what mode you're in and how the bike was beha- was going to behave it would feel way more thrilling it's something a rider could pick up in minutes yeah like two two to five minutes and all of a sudden the bike would just feel amazing because you could say okay well this is eco mode i know what this does it's not a thrilling experience but i see the value in it okay i've done that for 10 seconds let me shift up into sport one. Oh, i'm feeling good okay sport two sport three. Oh, okay here's where the power is this is the bike at its peak performance Love it. Now, you say bringing back the clutch lever. Are you really talking about bringing back the gear select lever? Sorry, yeah. I mean the shift lever. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and you can still just use the shift lever to bang up and down through the gears like you would with the dual clutch. Well, I think you would... You could do it either way, where the manual gear select was on the on the shift lever... And the modes were on the flappy paddles. Or you could do it the other way around. I kind of feel... you know what? Yeah, And it would be good to have that on electric bikes, too. Well, here's the thing. Because uh, on an electric bike, there's no gear select. There's no gear select lever. So that well, would just be your button, your, your switch for operating how aggressive the electric motor is. Video game developers have already figured this out. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the flappy paddle concept is intuitive to Honda because that's how their cars do it. Right. But to somebody who rides a bike and has never had a CVT or a dual clutch car, the flappy paddle system doesn't make a lot of sense to them. They still want their gears on the shift lever. But in this system, it's there's no mechanical shifting of gears. It's all computerized. Yeah. So you can even have an option in the menu to flip the two around. Ooh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's all by wire rather than, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So the same bike could have two modes that have both interface. Yeah, and that's the only thing you've got to decide setting-wise before you take off. Because everything else you can just do on the fly. Right. But the whole experience of, I need to look in the left corner of this digital dash to see a weird letter or letter and number to know what mode I'm in while I'm on an unfamiliar bike trying to navigate traffic during a test ride. Trying to navigate controls which are not standardized in any way and in weird places that you're not used to looking for. Right. I mean, a lot of these buttons, like the shift up button or the upshift button, is where a lot of people's setting is for their heated grips, for example. Or they're flash to pass. Uh-huh. So that's confusing. And you need these controls to be that someone can operate them quickly in an emergency situation without having to think about it. Right. Again, we've solved Yeah. We've yeah. solved dual clutch for Honda. You're you're welcome, Honda. You just listen and you know <laughs> look, look, okay, this is Moto Domus, right? We're going, there's no way Honda's not going to see something like this. I think one of the reasons that anytime you go to a Honda test ride of any kind these days, they have so many of these dual clutch bikes. It's not because they're really, I don't think they're really trying to sell that many dual clutch bikes right now. I think they're trying to get a lot of real world feedback, right? Right. 
This is Honda's sort of very quiet project Livewire. They're trying to figure out how this is going to work. And they've got it on bikes like the Africa Twin, like the Goldwing, you know, the very premium bikes, because those are the sorts of buyers that are going to early adopt this the quickest. Now, there are people already, you know, just riding around their dual clutch Goldwings, totally happy with it. But for every one of those people, I feel like I've heard five people go like, nah, I I couldn't deal with it. I just went for the manual mode. I've heard that a Mm. lot. So not the manual mode, just the manual version. Right. So I think Honda is kind of like having their cake and eating it too, where they're like, yeah, we're selling some dual clutch stuff. We got this new thing on the market. And so in the meantime, they are selling some, but I think they're, they've got such a huge presence with them in the test rides to try to get that customer feedback. Cause why would you get so many people to test ride something that they're already on the fence about if that wasn't your intention, you know, and think about even when we asked those guys at Honda, why they were doing so many bikes for the dual clutch and the two guys running the thing just were at odds. You know, one was like, no, it's going to be on all the sport bikes. There's no reason not to, you know, think about all the sports cars that have it. And the other guy's like, no, no way. And yeah, because they don't know. They honestly don't know because they're just testing this. Even though it looks like, uh, and it is a product that's definitely fine for the market. I think we're going to see a Gen 2 of dual clutch that works a lot more like we're imagining it. Mm -hmm. So there we go. All right. Yeah, I don't think we have much more to say about that. All right, let's take a little break here and then come back with emails. And through the magic of editing, we're back with emails. Okay. So what's this first one? We got this from William here. Let's see. Do, 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 do. says, hey, uh, thanks for the great podcast last week on carbs. Yeah, I've noticed a lot of people all of a sudden sending us emails. um, Enjoying the how to sound like you know what you're talking about stuff. He says, that information was very handy at work this week when I was trying to figure out why our pressure washer wasn't working. I'm a historian by education, so I'm really learn just learning some of this stuff. Incidentally, I'm that weirdo you talked about early on in your podcast who started listening up podcasts. I think he's got some weird grammar here about motorcycles before getting one. I rode a little as a kid on my grandfather's scooters, but I'm going to take the MSF course in the next few weeks. Thanks for the great podcast, and don't be afraid to teach us general stuff about cycles. All right, so this is pretty awesome because um, I don't—I just imagine so many listeners being just people that are so hardcore into bikes. They're even spending their free time, you know, when they're not riding, just listening more about bikes. But we have a lot of people who are just new to bikes, and therefore using podcasts as a way to learn before they start riding. So, uh, yeah, I think we're going to have to like start including a little bit more stuff geared towards new riders. Cause it seems like it's something that people are finding pretty valuable. So thanks a lot, William. And that definitely helps us inform the show. And you know what? Also badass on the decision to do the MSF course before you buy a bike. It's 
shocking how many people just get a bike you know don't even like just get the permits they just get the bike and go it's crazy dangerous i mean you know it's motorcycles so i you know I, that's what i did you know i didn't even get a permit i just got a bike and jumped on one and that was really dumb looking back at it and it wouldn't have hurt me at all to do everything proper to get into it especially especially now knowing how fun the MSF course actually is, even if you've been riding for a while. And, you know, once you get past the the basic exercises, it's a fun thing to go through. And I kind of can't wait until I get into a point where I can do some, uh, some more advanced courses. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of thinking about doing a, uh, as we move into like, you know, the fall here, maybe like a, an instructional day on some dirt bikes or something like that. I think there's a lot of value for that. And then there's also plenty of um, courses where you can do um, just like advanced street bike stuff. You bring your own bike and gear and it's cheaper than the MSF course. And it, it doesn't take all day. It's like one five hour day instead of two or three, eight hour days. But because everyone's already got the basics, it just moves at a quicker pace. Yeah. There are advanced classes. I think at some point we need to find somebody who does like uh, a Gymkhana class. Oh man. <laughs> I'm definitely going to have to put some puck sliders on the bike before I do something like that. But okay. And yeah, then rock on dude. <clears throat> yeah. Rock on. So we've got another email and this one's really interesting. Okay. There's a lot in this one. So this is from chance. He says, you guys are exactly the kind of podcast I originally went looking for when I started looking for motorcycle podcasts. He says, I listen to Cleveland Moto and Motorcycles and Misfits and also Broto GP. We listen to all of those too. Man, I love Broto GP. I love all of these shows a lot. Never missed anything from any of them. And he says, and all of them are good but always seem to lack something or seem to always to slightly push some kind of view. But your podcast is pretty much everything I want from the awesome motorcycle tech knowledge to the great banter. Plus you guys seem to love the same kind of bikes, which is always a plus. That bit's a little confusing to me because I, I feel like we talk about all bikes, but whatever. So he says, so the question for you guys, I want your brutally honest opinion of my project. It's a 97 ZX6R frame with an 07 ZZR600 engine. Got it in parts with a wiring issue, and now it's almost done. I work 60 hours a week with two toddlers, so I don't get a ton of free time. But I'd like to hear your honest thoughts. Uh, the first picture is after just initially getting it back together. Like you said, it was in pieces and boxes. Still not finished. I need some small touches to make it actually legal, but here it is. Okay, first of all, the fact that you work 60 hours a week and have two toddlers and you could do a motor swap into a frame that you also got the rest of the bike in pieces, kudos. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so yeah, the, uh, the 97ZX6R awesome bike i had a version of this so it was a different frame but essentially the same motor i had the 94 zx6e also yeah or sometimes it's just called the zzr 600 
and then you put the ZZR600 motor into it, which is still a carbureted motor, I think. Pretty sure. Yeah, that's not too difficult an engine swap. I believe all these ZZR600s or ZX6Rs kind of are interchangeable for quite a while. They kind of got that engine figured out really early on and only made very minor adjustments to it. It was kind of just hot shit even in 97. So this bike, we're going to put some pictures. So the original thing as he got it is, well, kind of a disaster. I'm kind of a little heartbroken in that you can tell it had that blue, green, and white color scheme that I think is the greatest motorcycle color paint scheme ever in all of history. But it looks like this bike didn't come with any bodywork either. So I totally get why you had to do these things to it. And then there's a series of pictures here where it looks like Chanchi had been fabricating some bodywork in a lot of different ways. And it kind of goes from looking like the most budget awful street fighter project ever to slowly morphing into something approaching like a completely finished look. Now with these pictures, I can't tell how good the paint is. I can't really tell if there's, you know, a lot of orange peel or not, or what all exactly is going on with everything. But towards the end of the series of pictures, it's looking pretty good, and this looks like home-fabricated stuff rather than a kit that you bought, because there's like this sort of very square, boxy end to it, and then like another version where you've got a different tail light on it, and it's all coming together pretty nicely in a pretty unique look. I mean, you obviously bought an LED tail and then designed something around that, but the paint on the tank and the pictures with just the tank looks pretty sharp. And I like that you kept the original wheel color because it goes good with the black. But, you know, the specifics of it doesn't really matter to me. Here's what matters. You've got this home project sort of street fighter thing that you've been doing. And now you've actually got it running. And to at least a usable degree, you've got it finished. I mean, it still needs like front turn signals and a couple other things to make it legal, like you said. But... You're already in rarefied air that you've gotten this far with the project. So immediately, hats off. Like, that's badass. Now, what you're kind of creating here is kind of basically a, a homebrew Z650, right? Mm. That's kind of the vibe I'm getting off of this. Because, you know, you didn't put fairings back on this. You're trying to just sort of make it work as a street fighter. And this is a street fighter in very much the classic, like, hardcore definition and spirit of a street fighter. Get a trash 600 and then sort of take the weaknesses of not having the body panels and through your own design and your own handiwork, turn that aesthetic into a strength. Right. And this bike seems to be doing that fairly well. So, um, you know, when they talk about bike restorations and bike projects, you know, you talk about like a two foot bike or a 10 foot bike, right? This bike is looking like it's sort of in a level of finish enough that at 10 feet or in traffic, it kind of looks finished, right? 
I don't, you know, I'd have to be there in person to see how good it really is up close, you know, how good it looks in a parking lot. But as it presents itself on the street, probably, it's starting to look a little sharp. And you can brag about doing the body work yourself and everything, and that's really cool. And, you know, if 600s and that style of bike and that performance is what you're into, and the Street Fighter look is what you're into, this is kind of the ultimate motorcycle, because it's custom. You did it yourself. You've got all that pride. You know it's working correctly because you've gone through the entire thing. You know, if you did this engine swap, I'm I'm guessing you went through the time to do a lot of basic checks on the engine before you put it in the frame to make sure it was a good motor. And, you know, you probably checked your valve clearances and all that kind of stuff. So you're putting this engine into there with confidence. You've got some level of knowledge of how well the whole thing is working already, you know? You've got something unique. You've got something sporty with performance because the ZZR 600 of any year is a is a very fast bike. It's got to be doing uh, 110 peak horsepower, something like that. Around there. I'm guessing. So it's quick. It's lightweight. It's nimble. You know, it's like I said, it's custom and it's yours. So my honest opinion of it is... You know, if it if it looks as good as in person as it does in the pictures, uh, th- this seems like there could be no better bike in the world for you. Right. Now, the one thing I will throw in is if everything's in good running order and, you know, because it's really just, it is basically an, en- an engine swap into a 90s frame then you're kind of in this wonderful spot where you probably didn't put a lot of money into it. You've just put time into it. Yeah. And if you're swapping the engine into a new frame, you're on a salvage title. So this bike will never really be worth anything. This bike is probably worth like $900 max oh yeah pristine running condition and probably closer to 700 yeah but it's a fully functioning zx6 Mm -hmm. so you are now in this wonderful freeing position where you don't have to worry about resale value so if you want to do something crazy to it you have absolute freedom to do it. If you, there was something you wanted to do to it, but you, you thought, well, that's a little bit out there. That's a little bit crazy. It doesn't matter. You can do absolutely anything to this bike to make it yours. So if you want to go crazy, if you have any inkling about just going just going wild with it, I would say go for it. There's there's one thing about it that I'll say. When I see a lot of these Street Fighter builds and even a lot of, you know, cafe builds and things like that, I've seen plenty of them where people do amazing fabrication. They do all sorts of cool stuff. They do really clever things with, you know, what's exposed from beneath the bodywork and, and all these things. But where they consistently fall short is the seat. Because remember... You know, you might like the way this bike looks because you built it 
and you made all these choices, but it has to feel good and you have to feel cool on it. And that's really difficult with the homemade seat, right? So what I would recommend doing is taking this to like an upholstery shop and see what you can do about getting some guy to make a really slick looking seat for it for you. Cause that's really going to tie in the look because the level to which you've got the tail of this done is already way beyond what most people are going to be able to do in their garage or willing to do in their garage. And if you can get a seat that really blends the tank into the way you have the tail, then that's when you're going to start fooling people who don't you know, necessarily know about motorcycles. They go, what model is this? I've never even seen anything like this. Like, this is so cool. Where'd you buy it? And the, the kind of subpar seat is really the only dead giveaway that I can see right now. And you know, doing seats is hard. There, there's no shame in having a professional do it. And trust me, you know, the first time you want to ride this more than, you know, 100 miles, you're going to be so glad you did that. Our brutally honest opinion is that, you know, the bike obviously isn't like perfect. It doesn't have a, uh, like a look like it came from a manufacturer. It doesn't look like you bought it off a showroom floor, obviously. But if it's done, you know, if it presents itself in public as well as it does in the, the you know, towards the ends of these pictures, I think you're way above what most people accomplish, which is impressive. And there's just a few little things that, you know, at this point, again, like I said, this is the perfect bike for you. I wouldn't worry about what other people think. I look into things that make it more usable for you like the seats and things like that. And, you know, maybe even if uh, you're riding it around and, you know, this bike was designed to have a full fairing around it. If the, you know, the wind is really fucking you up. I mean, maybe don't go be afraid to go for some sort of, you know, aggressive like bikini fairing thing to put on it as well. Cause that's definitely part of the whole street fighter look thing. If you want to incorporate that, that might do a little something for the look for it. Although I kind of like just the the classic round headlight on it. I think that sort of Ducati monsterish thing, the way the front looks is is pretty good. But, you know, that's the brutal opinion is, um, you know, just uh, just make sure you can do it so it's comfortable and it really fits you rather than worry what other people are thinking. Because, you know, how slick it all is to other people in the end doesn't fucking matter because this is at least going to look good in traffic and on the highway from that distance people are going to be like whoa he's got some crazy custom thing if they know about bikes. Well, here's the other thing if you take the average just the average person's perspective on a bike like this the average person who knows nothing about motorcycles is going to see it from 10 feet away a lane over in traffic or 50 to, you know, 100, 200 feet behind you in traffic. Or they'll walk past it in a parking lot and give it a glance and say, oh, that looks cool. But then to get close to it is only, is when you're really going to see all the details and the imperfections. And the only person who's going to get really up close and watch it is the person who's really into bikes. Yeah. The person who's going to see it out of the corner of their eye in the parking lot and say, oh, that's 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 cool. Let me go see what this is. 
And that person is the person who knows about bikes. And then when they see it up close and they see that there's all this fabrication done to it and they'll see all the imperfections, they're going to realize, oh, this is somebody's custom street fighter that they've put together themselves. And the fact that you've done it yourself is going to be way more impressive to that person. Yeah, or they're just going to be some sort of elitist that maybe, you know, is into Street Fighters, but insists that everything has to be done by some really expensive custom shop. In which so, case, fuck them. Exactly. There's just no pleasing that person, right? If this bike in its concept doesn't please someone, then there just is no pleasing them. So don't worry about it. It's either going to knock someone's socks off because of the work you've put in, or they're just never going to be happy. So, yeah, just hold your head high and just love the shit out of the bike is what I say. All right. We're running a little low on battery here, so we got to take a little break, and then we'll come back with another topic. All right. And we're back, and so we're going to talk about motorcycle news. Okay, so we're going to start with Harley's got another new model. Why? <laughs> so so this is the FXDR. It's got the 114 um, cubic inch Milwaukee 8 motor in it. This is not anything like the uh, the the really new super revolutionary stuff we're promised in 2020 or even... Uh, 2022 this is existing soft tail platform and it's basically just sort of a repackaging of other things and this is the fxdr so it kind of reminds me of a sort of mm, sort of a mix between like the the fat bob and the victory octane Right. It's a little <clears throat> bit more of like taking like the fat bob in a direction of like the Dyna, I guess. Is that like it's not that, but that's the closest I can come to what this bike is and is supposed to be two people. I don't know. It's it's kind of it's a little bit of a sportster twelve hundred with a little bit of the with the bodywork around the tail. It's got a bit of like that flat tracker feel to it. Mm-hmm. And really well, really what this bike is is it's parts bin plus maybe eight new pieces of bodywork. Right. I feel it's got it's got really long forks and you know the rake and and the wheelbase. I feel like this is maybe even supposed to kind of like be a replacement for the breakout. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um so the bike doesn't look bad. It looks, you know, Harley, but also unharley. The the tail of it is just chopped really short there's no space for a passenger uh the exhaust is very very unharley that's kind of one of the more remarkable things about it well, it's it almost like has, a shorty can it also has a visible swing arm as opposed to an actual soft tail hidden suspension right so what i'm thinking well i'm no i don't know what my thoughts are on this because harley's just made all these sort of announcements on really crazy unharley things they're going to do. And then they put out this, which is a finished model, just ready to go for sale next year. So there's two things here. Okay. The first is this is 
something a little bit rare with the actual visible swing arm that doesn't have kind of the false hardtail suspension. Mm-hmm. It it's not an actual soft tail. Right. So, you know, by the actual definition of the term. So this is Harley releasing a bike with the Milwaukee 8 that is acknowledging that swing arms exist. That is basically <laughs> <laughs> this is this is a bike. This is a classic. Yeah, I guess I guess um uh Harley had a very sort of flat earther relationship with swing arms for a long time. <laughs> right. <laughs> So this is this is a classically styled bike. It's got a little bit of flat tracker DNA in it style-wise, if not performance-wise. Yeah. But it's you know, it looks like it's got inverted forks. Mm-hmm. It's got a double disc up front. It's got the swing arm on display. So this is a classically styled Harley, but it, that that is visibly acknowledging modern technology. So that's yeah, like I said, there's something almost victory about the way it looks. Right. On top of that is that this bike is one of a hundred and something models they promised us over the next two years. Yes. So all in all, with all the crazy shit they're doing over the probably the next 18 months this one probably isn't too revolutionary but they're if they're going to have that many models to release they've got to find spaces in between expos and conventions to fit all of these oddball models into and that's right so they're they're showing this because they have so many different models to unveil that now is kind of a bit of dead space that they could fit this one into. Right. But I, I, okay. So obviously the plan is going to be that in, like you said, 18 months or two or three years, except for the big cruiser line, we're just not going to recognize anything that they're doing from what they were doing this year or in years past. They're just going to slowly be changing everything model by model until everyone wakes up one day and it's a completely different Harley Davidson than what we used to know. And we didn't realize the change all at once. Well, until they told us that they were going to release a street fighter and an adventure bike and the live wire, we would have, we, our socks would have been blown off seeing Harley release this. It's true. Um, again, I think, I think the most notable thing, things about this bike, as you pointed out, the visible swing arm and basically the shorty can exhaust like a uh, uh, shorty can exhaust would have been seen as like motorcycle herpes by Harley <laughs> Davidson six months ago. Right. Like what the. That's just something you didn't expect to see coming, especially on something that's basically I mean, very much. Definitely. This is a power cruiser, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not quite as chunky as the fat Bob, right? This is, this is a little bit more, a little bit more classic and in some ways, very Harley looking and in some ways, very not like there's something sort of seventies Kawasaki about the way that seat comes off at the end there. Mm hmm. 
And there's something kind of Buell about the headlight fairing. Well, it's also all a little bit XR750 as well. Yes, it is that too. Except, yeah, the the back end isn't raised up. It's it's a little lower. But, you know, this is a bike that honestly, like, I could see myself on versus, uh, let's say, a Breakout or a Sportster 1200. This is, oh, absolutely. This yeah. is a little bit more my cup of tea. And it's still, you know, classic Harley Cool in plenty of ways. But this is definitely a step in the right direction. I kind of like it, but, you know, it's still not really singing to me because I'm really just waiting for the Street Fighter, right? Right. Again, this would have blown our socks off if we didn't know about all the other stuff they had announced. Right. So the timing is strange for me. And I feel like there's got to be something we can infer from this. I think it's just because they have so many crazy things they're going to release. And again... We don't know if they're good or not. We'll need to see what how they perform right. and what now, the numbers now are. Now, at AIM, but, we're not going to get to ride a Street Fighter. We're not going to get to see a Pan America. They may have some like models sitting there that don't work or something like that, some concept bikes for us to see. But this is probably something we'll be able to ride, mm-hmm. which will be interesting because I still haven't ridden anything with a Milwaukee 8. It's strange to me that like you know I could have at Coda, but instead, like... I just had a, a hard you had on to it. ride the Bergman. I had to ride the Bergman. <laughs> <laughs> the, nothing was going to stop me from that. So uh, it'll it'll be interesting to see. You know, is this motor good? I've heard these motors get real hot um, on your legs and everything. I've, I've you know, but you know, maybe just seeing this flavor and seeing people react to it. You know, Harley going for a different styling aesthetic. That's Seems to suit them, but it's definitely moving forwards. It's interesting. Um, You know, this is a bike that's definitely not like an empty promise. This exists. This is going to be for sale very soon, right? This is going to be in showrooms in a matter of months, you know, by February, I'm sure. I like. Maybe even December. These will be in showrooms and I... I kind of here's here's what I'm thinking, okay? They need models like this because the big hole in Harley's plan to attract this different kind of customer and this different kind of market that they're getting into with these with these really these bikes that are really going in a different direction is their salespeople. Mhm. Your average Harley sales sales guy, you know, he's got all the tats. He's like, you know, you walk in the store and he's like, what's up, brother? Right there. I don't know how easy it is to retrain those guys to sell a different kind of bike. They've been wearing horse blinders on selling a certain kind of product to a certain kind of people literally for generations. Right. Right. This isn't like some sort of new age, uneducated use of the word literally here. Like my dad sold Harleys. I sell Harleys. I've been selling to this particular family, this particular town, these particular bikes for a long time. You know, I know all the guys in the hog group and everything, and this is the world I live in. And I have had to become a true believer in the sales pitch of these bikes. And now we're seeing Harley do things that other companies do as well. And what is that sales pitch? 
right? What is, how do they sell those bikes and how does Harley retrain them to do this? Now we do know that Harley has some of the best dealer support of any company out there in terms of how to train your salespeople, what to give them to say, how to encourage sales in certain kinds of bikes and direct people one way or another. Harley's fantastic about this. Whereas, you know, in Honda dealerships or whatever, it's just sort of like, yeah, just talk to the person and see what happens (laughs) really, you know, just be nice and hopefully they'll buy a bike. That's sort of Honda's approach to it. Well, this is always kind of, it's always an interesting arrangement, especially if you go to, you know, in Greeley, if you go to, you know, the local motorcycle dealer or you know, if you go to one of them, it'll be 80% Harley and then some Yamahas and a couple of Hondas and, you know, something else. And then you got to go a couple towns. The biggest of- presence of metric manufacturers is in the ATVs. Right. And then, you know, you got to go a town over if you want an Aprilia or a Moto Guzzi. Or you may even have to go to Denver to get something Italian. Yeah. Well, there is a Ducati dealership in Fort Collins. And there is a sort of Italian dealership in Fort Collins. I don't know how much new bikes they sell. I think they get a lot of used stuff in. It's hard to... And I think even the Ducati dealer is also Triumph and BMW. That's very common. There's a place like two blocks from here that is Triumph, Ducati, BMW. Right. So, and like, well, here's the thing. And if you want to go Piaggio, there are so few dealers and they're so concentrated in cities that when we went to Coda and um, dad was asking the rep, where could I go to get a test drive back? in colorado yeah um the guy said oh yeah go to erico in denver and he knew the owner of erico motorsports right on a first name basis right you know now so what i'm saying is harley's putting out these models that are sort of you know if if the if the standard harley fair they've been selling is you know cold water you know this is getting up into uh you know we're raising the temperature you know we're not at bath temperature yet but we're 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 getting it up a little bit and they're really just gonna have to ease these guys into selling something that isn't just pretending to be something from the 50s and has a whole bunch of compromises and whatever you know, and and again, like nothing against the bikes that Harley's selling now, because for what they're designed to do and what they're trying to do, they do do it well. But we all know that that market is disappearing. It just is. I mean, it will always be around, and Harley will always serve that market, and they'll be mm-hmm. the best at serving that market. But they have to serve other markets, and the gospel in their dealerships has been, well, no, we just do this one thing. And I think it's going to be really tricky to get their salespeople to do something else. And these models, rather than be their own thing, their own bike, they they just have to be these intermediary steps to get the actual salespeople slowly accustomed 
to the idea that all the bikes are changing because there's no one more faithful in the Harley faithful than the sales guys. Right. right? They drank the Kool-Aid a long time ago. And now they've all got to sort of be like, like ex cult members brought back into society. Right. You know, like Harley, like, like a, like when, when a cult leader gets caught, like, you know, fucking the 14 year old girls and all of a sudden they don't know what's gone, what they've been <laughs> doing with their life. Right. Like they, they, you know, some of them will accept the new reality and some of them won't. Some of them will do mental gymnastics to just keep doing what they've been doing and justify that and defend it. And they'll hate the new models. And there's going to have to be marching orders that like, you know, there are salespeople that are going to have to be let go because they can't get with the program and sell these new models. You know what it's like? It's like the, um, the heaven's gate cultists. Right. And what you know about heaven's gate, right? The cultists who think that every time this comet goes by, there's an alien spaceship that's hiding behind. And if they can kill themselves at this moment, they can get, uh, they can, they can Ford prefect style flag down the spaceship and catch a ride. But they, they also left like five people behind. And those five people were basically instructed to maintain the website. Yeah. And you've got to reintegrate those people back into into normal society. That's basically what Harley has to do with their salespeople. Yeah. Harley, if you want to hire us to identify the the true believers that can't be can't be brought on board and just fire them, we'll do that for you. <laughs> No, I can spot a Harley true believer from a mile away. I I talk to a lot of people about their motorcycles. And you know what? If in your day-to-day life, you know, you're a Harley, you know, true believer, you're the Harley faithful, I have no problem with that. But if you're a Harley sales guy, well, first of all, there's no way you're listening to it. You've made it to episode 32 of this podcast because our ideas are just a little too wide for you. <laughs> but let's say you're here. This is the first episode. Like, you are going to need to embrace this. Otherwise, you're going to be out of a job because nobody, there's no one young, there's no one that's going to buy what you have traditionally been selling for so long. They're, they just aren't there. It's not viable. Right. And from the top down, you know, Harley has been making changes to to get with the program and get with the new market. They're still going to be doing what you've always loved that they do, but they've had to diversify like what they're offering to people and you need to embrace this. And if you can't, you're going to find yourself out of a job. Basically, I and I think this is the bit like when they're big big things that they're going to struggle with now seeing how much like thought they've put in to all these new models they're putting out i'm sure harley has a plan for this like i said they are the masters of dealer support so mm, i'm sure there's a whole bunch of retraining that's going to go on and and all of that and you know some people are going to stay i bet most of them are all going to stay but some people aren't going to get it so well, I think, also, they also I think that of... is the purpose of this motorcycle rather than serving a new market. Right. Well, they also have a lot of privately owned dealerships. I think 
I imagine right, but the those majority... dealerships get marching orders from Harley. To an extent, but even you know, even they ha- will have to adapt to the market conditions, and they will have to adapt to demand. And the main thing is, I'm sure they've seen it coming for a long time in their bottom line. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to something else, uh, which is also Harley related. Harley has patented an automated braking system. So this is interesting. Is this now this is the first time in all of this new Harley stuff coming out that I've just thought, okay, this is just total vaporware, like smokescreen, just Harley's just trying to appear progressive and they don't actually have to back up this one right this is just sort of a publicity statement hey we're working on this thing because no one's really heard about anyone else working on technology like this for motorcycles even though it's probably not that hard to do i think harley's just sort of just at least looking to appear like they're running with this ball just to sort of like keep some headlines up. Like I said, they've got to keep making waves for the next like eight months until some of these newer models really start hitting. You know, they've got to keep the buzz going. And it seems to be like every few weeks metered out, there's some news dropped and it's not like super big news, but they're just bleeding it in. Like this FXDR, I would not have heard about its existence if I didn't get something in the mail, which was this really big, like four page fold out glossy mailer. Cause I sign up for like every motorcycle mailer thing that there is to do just cause I want to see what, what is, what is it that they're, that they're presenting to the public? You know, I get them from Indian once a month. I get them from Harley. I get one from Honda. I get, I get these things in the mail and I signed up for them knowing I would get this mail because I'm just interested in like what the company is specifically pressing. Cause sometimes in my research about bikes, I'm looking for specific things and it's nice to be notified what these companies are actually pushing. And this ABS is not something Harley's pushing. It's just sort of been really more or less just sort of leaked than anything okay. else. So I have a lot I can add, but you should probably actually describe what we're talking about here. Okay. So, um, <laughs> a lot of people like articles just been calling it ABS, but this isn't an ABS system. So this is automated braking or automatic. Bra- I, I don't know. Anyway. So, you know, if you've got like a Tesla or like a top of the line BMW, you can just drive it at a wall at 60 miles an hour. And before you hit that wall, the car will just automatically go, Nope, you're going to run into this and put the brakes on for you. Harley's developing a system for that for motorcycles. Right. Okay. And that's very complicated. Okay. So one of the things that happens is when you file a patent, it's a public record. Yes. There are people that just go through every new patent thing that comes out, sifting through it to try to find something worth talking about. And when you create a patent, 
you don't have to have detailed schematics and plans of exactly how it works so that somebody could just pull it up and completely recreate the system. Patents are this bizarrely vague thing that you submit. And it's kind of a concept and a specific implementation of it. When you really look at the letter of the law and how it works, and this is a big thing in tech, which is my field. It's this weird thing where you have to you have to specify a mechanism for how you implement a particular feature. But that particular mechanism could actually be extremely vague. Well, right. But again, you can submit anything as a patent. As it's been said many times, you can just draw a dick on a napkin and submit that. You can submit it, and it will still be public record that you even submitted it. Right. And you may have a really, really specific implementation for like a mind like a brainwave reading headband right that can be a video game controller and i'm sure there's like 30 of these patents that exist already yes and you don't have to have made one that can actually do anything yes but you can submit a patent for it uh-huh so that doesn't mean so the fact that there is this patent out there doesn't mean that Harley has made any sort of prototype or made any headway into actually solving the problem they are claiming a patent on. Right. So that's where the conspiracy theory comes in. And I think it's no coincidence that it's coming in at the same time they're releasing sort of a a less exciting new model than the last round of model announcements were. In that they know that amongst the internet and, you know, the dorky people like us that, you know, sort of report on these kinds of things, it's just it's just keeping a little bit of buzz alive at a very strategic moment. Well, there's also this other thing that happens in very large bureaucratic organizations, which is as your development team is working on something, you kind of have this whole this whole sort of product and development paradigm where somebody is trying to create a bunch of features and coming up with an idea with ideas. And then you have a team of engineers who are trying to make those things work. And as this whole process goes along, you've got engineers who are actually solving problems and then, you know, product people who are trying to make marketable features that can go into your products and then another step removed is lawyers. You know, I kind of wonder if it's a men who stare at goats kind of situation. With someone a at lot Harley, of it is. Yeah, with someone at Harley, like, you know, Honda's uh, doing, because Honda is doing an automatic bra- automated bra- braking system for their bikes as well. And where they're like, well, Honda's doing it. You know, is it like, <laughs> yes. hey, we got to do it. Was it like, you yeah. know, the American government and the Russian government, you know, where it's like, well, the Russians are working on like ESP. Like, should we be doing, should we be doing sci research as well? Like, I don't know. Well, I mean, if they are, we don't want them to be ahead of us. We better do <laughs> it. Right. You know, and you, you, all That's of a sudden a, you get all is... kinds of money put towards something completely fruitless because the competition's doing it. 
That's basically how it works. Right. So that could be, that could just plain and simple be the situation. Right. But I have to think that Harley must be hyper aware of what their image is right now and how they're going to manage that. So 50 50 could be I a bet, really well planned out system that they're both working on that's going to be revolutionary, or it could be complete vaporware. Who knows? Or, you know, it could have been like, okay, we've determined that we have to put this patent out and we have to look into this to some degree because Honda's doing it or whoever. Maybe they're thinking, all right, we're going to release this model and we'll just do this at the same time and maybe it'll be somewhat covered up. You know, we don't want to make a big deal about doing this, but we have to do it. So it could go right. either way. I For for conspiracy theorists, it's great. It is. Yeah. Now, I, I can't think of, you know, the whole concept of an automated braking system where you've got, you know, LiDAR detectors on the front of the bike that can see obstacles coming the same way that a lot of modern car safety systems can. Mm-hmm. And automatically braking for you. That whole basic system can't really work on a motorcycle the same way it can in a car. Because in a car, you've got a seatbelt on. And the car can just take over the driving completely to just brake perfectly. And brake at the last possible second. And well, make is there a reason you couldn't have some sort of steering dampener on the bike that could take care of some issues like that as well? The problem that you're always going to run into is that the rider shifts his weight on the bike. And if you just stopped the bike as quickly as you could in an emergency situation, the rider is going to go over the handlebars anyway. Because the rider is not fixed to the bike in the same way that a driver has a seatbelt strapping them into the car. I, I don't think you can get the rider to fly over the handlebars without the bike crashing into something. I think that's that's a myth. You can't, like, brake so hard you fly over the handlebars. Right, but are you going to have a set of motors, a, a set of motors in the steering column that will hold the weight of the rider? Um, I don't know. I'm not an expert. I'm not an right. engineer. But, but this whole system seems a little questionable. It could be. Right. I don't know. But, but what I, traction control doesn't, you know, works in corners where the bike's at lead angle and mm-hmm. everything. There, there's, right. there's ways to make this work. Right. Well, there there is, a, there is an actual cornering ABS system that does work. Right. If this is a blend of cornering ABS and traction control and then an obstacle avoidance or an obstacle detection system, and it's not designed to be as full on uh, collision avoidance as it is in a car. You know, right. th- there's a lot so, of different ways this can play out is the so point. So in technology, we have this concept that's in kind of modern development of technology. We have this concept called, uh, well, not a concept, but a term minimum viable product, uh-huh. which is, well, we want to make something available really quickly what is the bare minimum we can do that provides value? And I can think of a really a really good system that would be a great rider aid that match that makes this work. Because in the Harley patent, there was a lot of info, a lot of detailing around um 
the system detecting that the rider was aware that mm-hmm. the accident was coming and that they were braced and ready to to break for it. But what you could do is if you had some LiDAR detectors on the front of the bike, the same way you would in a car, uh-huh. and you could detect that an obstacle is coming up and that you had a really short braking distance, then what you could do is you could calculate how fast the bike was going. You could see the distance to the obstacle. You could figure out what the optimum braking was to just stop short, you know, six inches from hitting it. Right. And then when the rider jams on, when the rider grabs a fistful brake to stop the bike, instead of having the brakes be linked Mm -hmm. via brake fluid directly to the to the actual pistons you could have the brakes be electronic and you could modulate the brakes through a motor system and disconnect the the actual brake lever from the brakes and then when he grabs a fistful of brake you could instead of having the abs system where you know you say well we're we're not going to monitor how much pressure they're applying we're just going to see we're just going to detect when the tires are sliding and we've lost traction and let off and put it back on and on and off and on and off what you could instead do is have an intelligent braking system where the computer just applied the brakes gradually completely disconnected the rider from the braking system and then allowed the forks to dive and gradually applied the braking pressure perfectly like a top level MotoGP rider. That is good. Now I've, I've heard one really, really excellent theory um, about why Harley might be doing this. If it's not, you know, for any of the other weird reasons we discussed, they might be doing something like this. And I heard it actually on the, uh, the throttle podcast. And there's a theory going around that, you know, with Harley looking into electric bikes and all of that, maybe Harley is sort of envisioning a day where a motorcycle isn't really marketable or sellable if it doesn't have some sort of function where it can work on a highway where only automated vehicles are allowed to drive and a collision avoidance system is going to be part of that package that a vehicle will need. Otherwise it's not legally allowed to be on the interstate. And that might be 20 years from now. It might be 15. It might be 40. Like we don't know, but it's not hard to imagine a world where there's certain roads that only autonomous or vehicles with a certain level of driver aids are going to be allowed to drive on. And maybe Harley and other companies are looking at this. So your bike will have a mode you can put it into to make it compliant to be able to ride on these roads. Just a theory. I think if you got to that point, 
motorcycles just wouldn't be legal on public roads anymore. I don't know. Because with uh, Americans and motorcycles, it's not the same relationship that it is with other cultures, obviously. And I think motorcycles could be legislated out like 50%, but God damn it, that last, that other 50% you can't get rid of because people are so hardcore about it, you know? Like, and I think if it is got... much easier to own a classic car in the United States than it is in Europe. Right. Owning an old vehicle in Europe is a ridiculous ridiculous pain in the ass i mean like switzerland just won't even let you do it switzerland's like fuck you and your and your vintage car doesn't meet emissions we don't give a shit mm -hmm. like you can only ride it at a track or whatever it's not on the public roads they, they'll just tell you to fuck off right you can't imagine a united states where you're not legally allowed to operate a model t on the roads right you just can't. You can't imagine that. But I can't imagine at least maybe sections of cities or highways where in the future when the norm doesn't just become automatic transmission, it becomes automatic everything, right? And in well, the I'm interest of public... The when all the cars are self-driving. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I think the world that we want is a world where... We want a world. Most people have an automated car, but the but it's set up that you can still drive a regular car should you choose to. Right, and but the eighty five percent of the population who don't give a shit about driving as a hobby and just do it because they have to can fall asleep in their cars and have the computer drive it perfectly. And the people who love driving and develop driving as a skill still get to drive. Right. And I think motorcycles will fit into that very well. And I think we can all agree, like, you know, let's say we wouldn't, if if it was already the reality that more than 50% of people had a car that was capable of some sort of autonomous driving, but let's not even say autonomous driving, just had at least accident, like avoidance and automated braking and things like that. It's not hard to imagine we could say, all right, within the circle of 270, if you're on 25 or 6 in Denver, your car has to be automated or at least have these driver aids. From the hours of 5 in the morning to uh, you know 7 in the morning or whatever, right? Right. And, you know. And that just makes that traffic move that much faster and smoother and everything. Mm -hmm. And it would be very difficult for Honda or Harley or whoever to sell a premium motorcycle if there were places and times its use was restricted. So I think they need to sort of work on systems like this so they can throw them on the bike should that day come. Okay, so I actually, I, okay. I think that's the reason they're doing it. When you put it that way, that actually makes a lot of sense. Um, not in terms. Well, there's there's two aspects to that. One is if there is an accident on a major highway where you have to close multiple lanes during rush hour, it's a financial disaster for the city. You oh know, yeah, the economic cost of a fender bender 
on the highway where a car is no longer drivable and has to get towed off during rush hour is, you know, easily a million dollars just in terms of the number of people delayed and the lost productivity. Uh, the lost jobs. Think about the people who have had a series of problems in their life that's caused them to be late to work and their boss is like, hey, you got to shape it up. And they left for work early that day. And then the fucking traffic accident made them lose their job, right? And I'm not talking about CEOs, people who work at Burger King, but even maybe people with mid-level management positions. Well, Just even- that happens every day in every American city. Some person <laughs> loses their fucking job when they really just had the best intentions, right? Just that. And that's like the most out there like way to lose even money just, and that's a huge impact even just the hard to measure marginal company a lost 77 dollars of business company b lost 500 dollars of business company c lost a thousand yeah company someone b got lost to work late didn't make a sale that they would have made if they were 15 minutes early yeah just just the the marginal profitability on 900 people being an hour late to work yeah like that alone is just a huge cost that you that a, that a city has to eat so there is a combination of automated you know collision avoidance that we'll just say that does that that accident doesn't happen and you just avoid that financial disaster right but not only that a major highway in denver should realistically have something like a throughput of 1,500 people a minute past any particular point. If you're on I-25 and there's five lanes and all the cars are 200 feet apart and they're all going 55, 65 miles an hour, you should be able to get 1,500 people through a minute. Mm -hmm. And in reality, there's probably what? At most... 250,000 full-time employed people, you know, at the absolute most in Denver. Well, population here is about half a million, maybe 0.6. So so it's going to be less. It's going to be like 160,000. Maybe. Maybe it's 150,000. Yeah, because like a third of that's children and high school students and college kids. Right. And then there's stay-at-home parents. and Yeah. So during rush hour, you should realistically, if everyone just drove perfectly and everyone could get on and off the ramps along I-25 and everyone just had to go along I-25 and everyone just drove perfectly, I-25 with five lanes and then assuming that all the other roads that they splintered off onto had just were just perfect i-25 should be able to support the entire fully employed population of denver in a hundred minutes of rush hour through any particular point and we know that is not the case that is not the case you can you can just get onto i-25 at one o'clock in the afternoon and it's gridlock right and that's not even east west that east west that's north south right so this is not a problem that's going to get any better on its own and so 
Yeah, every major American city and other world cities are going to have to deal with problems like this as density increases. So they need things like automated cars. There's a very big interest in right. making this happen. And motorcycles need to fit into that world at some point. Right. So it may not be that you have to be able to just avoid an accident, but there's all sorts of little things that happen in traffic. Because if everyone just drove perfectly to the letter of the law and optimally within a pretty reasonable margin of error, we would just never have traffic in Denver. It's pretty easy if everyone just drove ideally that there would just be no traffic. But inevitably, with over 100,000 people, a lot of people fuck up. Right. And it's those little things where, oh, somebody slams on the brakes too hard because the person in front of them wasn't paying attention. They had to slam their brakes on. They didn't come to a complete stop, but you did because you added in that extra margin of safety. Right. According. And then... The next person had to. It's the whole accordion effect, and it just turns into this massive nightmare. And you th- you keep thinking, oh, well, I'm in gridlock traffic. There must have been some huge accident up ahead. Nope. And all of a sudden, it just clears up. If you can have some sort of rider aid that allows you to break, but you can put it into a, you know, a traffic mode, where the yeah, bike... so it talks to other cars and it knows what the traffic looks like an hour down the road. Right. So it may not even be that it breaks harder for you, but it actually stops you from breaking too hard and from going too slow, from panicking. Yeah. And improves traffic. And again, it's not that you're going to use this on the bike. It might just be something the bike is legally going to be required to have in order to work on certain roads in the future. I think this is... And if this system is for real, I think this is the most likely reason that they're working on it. Yeah. So it's a combination Rather of... than a conspiracy so, theory of we're trying to create Buzz or, or let Buzz die down or sneak it under the radar with the announce of a new model. Is what I was getting at. There's yeah. a lot of conspiracy theories going on, but trying to like just scratch the surface, I think this is the reason this is being announced now. Everyone will completely forget about it in six months' time or less, maybe even two weeks. I mean, you know, what was happening with Trump three months ago? I don't even remember, right? No one does, right? No one's going to remember what Harley's patent applications were. I barely remember Ford doing the scooter thing stuck inside the Windstar, right? <laughs> so we all we all have goldfish memories at this point. Exactly. So there we go. Uh, yeah, I think Harley's automated brake system has been sewn up pretty good there. So I think the last thing we have to talk about is MotoGP or the lack thereof. Okay, so we're talking about now, not MotoGP, but the lack of MotoGP. And if you didn't hear, because your head's buried in the sand, since uh, the first time since like 1980, MotoGP canceled a race. And they didn't just cancel any race, they canceled Silverstone, the British Grand Prix. And this is a big deal. Because... Well, motorcycle racing traditionally happens rain or shine because it's not like a car. 
you really don't lose that much traction in the rain on a motorcycle. I mean, it increases your lap time like eight seconds. Right. But, but that's not a lot on an average lap time of, you know, 145 seconds. Right. So if on a motorcycle in the rain, the first 15 minutes are kind of dangerous because the oil's coming up from the road and everything. But after about 15 minutes, it's washed off. And if you're not speeding or anything, you can actually ride completely normally in the rain because all the traction you need is still there. Yeah, you've got like 85% of the traction. I, I heard it was more like 90 or 95. But in any case, it's a lot more than you think it is, right? Right. And so for this reason, especially on a controlled surface like a racetrack is, motorcycle racing can still happen in the rain. Just because of the way the tires are and the way traction, you know, happens on a bike versus a four-wheeled vehicle, it's much easier. You know, Formula One gets canceled for the rain all the time by comparison, right? Now, this is super shocking because this happened in England at Silverstone. Like, as we've discussed in an episode or two ago, like, the home of rain, Right. And motorsport. And motorsport. Like, Silverstone isn't just any track, okay? Every Formula One team, every Formula One team has its home operation within 10 miles of Silverstone. It is the de facto testing track for Formula One. And for many reasons. It's got a variety of corners, straights, and everything, so it's really good for testing your setups for all sorts of different conditions. And it's coin flip, wet or dry. You don't know, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it's very rarely um, like hard rain, but it's kind of just a lot of moisture all the time. You know, there are a lot of companies and places that go to great expense to put in sprinkler systems all over their racetracks or their test tracks so they can recreate wet conditions to test things out. Uh, Famously, Top Gear, when they built their track, put this sprinkler system all around it so they could test drive every car in exactly the same wet conditions. Turned out the sprinkler system didn't work and they just threw it out the window and didn't give a shit and just sort of came up with a formula to plus or minus seconds for cars you know to account for it being wet or dry but that's to the level that people get concerned about this so the fact that silverstone which was resurfaced not that long ago right Mm -hmm. it the surface was unsuitable and water was puddling up and pooling and there was a there was a very real risk of hydroplaning which is a lots complete, of people did. Yeah, and lots of people did in, in, in practice, exactly. So they had to cancel the race. Now, the general consensus seems to be that enough evidence was provided that they were just dangerous conditions, right? Right. I think the only rider that still wanted to go was Jack Miller. <laughs> well, but and Mark Marquez. Did Marquez still want to race? Marquez wanted to race. Well... No, okay. Mar- Marquez didn't want to race, but if Marquez didn't want to race, yeah. you know it was bad. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, between Mark Marquez and Jack Miller, right, the two probably most risk-neutral 
on the whole on the whole paddock, right? Not risk neutral, risk ambivalent. There we go. Right. Yeah. The the two most hell for leather, we don't give a shit riders, you know, in terms of safety and whatever, right? Just now, let Honda it all hang loose. definitely didn't want them to race. Honda did not want them to race, but you know, those two riders sort of represent represent two very different viewpoints of still wanting to race or not race. And, you know, when you get those two answers from those two guys, you know, like shit's crazy. You know, when, when, when the crazy Australian is just going like, fuck it, I'm game. Oh yeah, let's race. Right. Then, you know, you know, he's, he's doing something because, you know, Aussies are just yeah. always, when everyone else and the pussies leader. out, the Australian is always doubles down on how game he is. And on top of that, the the points leader who is protecting his lead also wants to race. Right. Yeah, you know that they're just being driven by something to step up to unsafe circumstances. And then on top of that, when Valentino Rossi, who is well behind in points and has and is very good in the wet, says, No, we can't do this, it's too dangerous. All those things combined, you know that it was unsuitable to race, right? So the big question is, how did it get to this point? How did people not know about the track surface leading up to this? Or if they did, why wasn't it addressed earlier? And the really puzzling thing is that something was flown out there by the circuit, by the teams of, well, is it possible just to race on Monday? Well, no. And they Monday totally, they totally was a raced. holiday in England. They totally could have raced on Monday, but they didn't. And um, supposedly the reason they didn't race on Monday, even though, I can't remember who, who tweeted it out, but there was, there was an actual tweet um, about how... They had all of their track wardens, all of their volunteer staff, all of their medics. Everyone was ready to just to, to do, do a race on Monday. Yeah. But apparently there was a lot of controversy and a lot of politicking going on where a lot of people didn't want to race because they had testing early next week. Um, I can't remember where, but there there was testing to be done next week. Um, it's a little weird because I can see that a lot of teams will have given up, and you know KTM and Aprilia are way more interested in their testing and being able to test their their new their new parts. But it doesn't really seem to all add up. Yeah, I mean you're getting paid. An, a very honest paycheck to travel all over the world, mess with bikes, go racing, do testing, do all the tech and everything. Like when everything goes to schedule, like 99% of the time, is it that big a deal to throw in a 60 or 80 hour week? I have to do it at my job, managing a restaurant all the fucking time. Right? Well, there has been a lot of talk this year about the season being really long and adding another two races onto the season, which when you don't sleep in your own bed 
for four months at a time. I can understand that it gets really stressful and just gets way too difficult. Right. Over a long period of time. You know, you could have other techs working and you can have people get extra breaks that way. You can rotate people in and out of, you know, the tour essentially that it is the motorcycle racing circus that moves all over the world doing this. Well, you, you can, but you know, do you really want to swap out your pit crew? You know, four weeks into the season. No, not swap one? out the whole crew, have people on a rotation. So you're just dropping one of them every few weeks and someone else, you have an extra person floating to accommodate that time. But I don't know how the the system works. The point is, is that these races are just never rained out. Right. So we're talking about a one time thing of putting in an extra day. Well, here's the thing. If they resurfaced, if they resurfaced the track, because I have to imagine now when I think back at least the last three of the four years that MotoGP has raced at Silverstone. It's been raining. The track gets resurfaced. That's Silverstone's resting natural state. Right. And now all of a sudden, after the track getting resurfaced, there's no good drainage. There's resting. There's, you know, there's pooling water on the track. When they're when they're resurf after they resurface the track, how hard is it? You know, given what's at stake, given the reputation of the track, is it so hard to go just go and get the the local fire department to bring a fire truck out and go over the track and just spray the fire hose over it and see what the drainage is like? Is there no accountability in the job being done on the track? So here's the conspiracy theory. They've been working on a track in Wales for some time. Construction's been on. Construction's been off. Is it going to be ready? Is it going to be part of the MotoGP season? Is it not? Right? Mm -hmm. This has all kind of been going on. Now, it's very difficult to wrestle a race away from Silverstone because Silverstone has the reputation that it has, right? It's like, well, it's Silverstone. How can you take a race away from that, right? How many years did MotoGP keep racing at the Indianapolis Speedway and Laguna Seca, even though the races weren't that good? Right. Because they're just not very good motorcycle racetracks. They're just not. That's a good point because because Silverstone those circuits is... are so hard to take a race from because they're so legendary, right? And in reality, Silverstone is an excellent test track, but it's not a super exciting track. It is for Formula One, but I mean, it's the be all and end all of Formula One tracks. It really is, mm-hmm. but it's it's slightly less so for bikes. But it's still a good circuit and it's still a good race at Silverstone every year. So. On top of the fact that it's pretty good, it offers kind of a guarantee of a wet race almost every year, which is nice, you know, when it's just nothing but dry races. It's kind of nice just to have a wet one thrown in there. It just mixes things up, and it makes the season overall more interesting. Well, whales won't disappoint there either. Exactly. So I'm wondering 
is this something where they knew this was going to be a problem and they kind of thought, let's run with it and maybe this will break some hearts and it might be easier to switch to this whale circuit, which may or may not happen. We don't know. I don't think riders would risk injury through well, they didn't. practice they, and they, qualifying. They canceled the race. They didn't. Well, look. Well, they did. Well, okay, right. I, again, I don't believe this. I'm just throwing the conspiracy <laughs> theory out there, right? Riders aren't going to throw themselves through gravel traps <laughs> into air barriers. So anyway, promote a, a well, then here's the thing. If, if the conspiracy theory is not true, then the question shows up again. Well, how did, how was this possible in the rainiest track of all the tracks? I think how was this not foreseen? And at the Brit at the Formula One British Grand Prix, you know, drivers commented like, oh, this is going to be a problem for MotoGP. Lewis Hamilton said some things in public about it. Right. Here's the thing. Everyone thinks in any particular field that the people running it are experts. And the reality is there's no academic course to become a professional racetrack owner. There is no professional <laughs> course. There is no trade school that will teach you how to professionally resurface a racetrack. These are, this is a whole industry. It just all sort of runs on how everything went last year. Right. There's, if there's 20 races in a season, there are 20 different tracks owned by 20 different people who are delegating to a whole, to hundreds of people who are all just kind of flying by the seat of their pants. Yeah. And that's a very that's a very believable thing to hear. And that is what I believe about this. So what we're thinking is maybe Silverstone is starting to fall victim to what the entire British bike industry fell to in the late 60s and 70s. Just a just a regular human complacency that might happen when you sit at the top of the heap for so long. Right. Well, and they just similar... kind of thought we're Silverstone. They can't take a race from us. And then they let the, they let the surface get wrong. Well, it's and... a similar, it's a similar case with Coda. And now where... the Asians are going to take over. Right. <laughs> it's a similar case with Coda where this year, everyone was complaining about, the the track surface yeah the track surface at coda even though they they grounded down somehow they didn't but austin's always guaranteed to be really nice weather pretty much right but you know the the track surface was kind of ruined by formula one which is the main complaint about yeah. gp sharing tracks with formula one and they did all this work to it and it still wasn't very good and they still had all this dust from all the grinding on the track. Yeah. And you know, it's, it, yeah, it is complacency. It's, it's experience you can't gain other than by fucking up. And it's something you kind of learn in the moment and you can have a race that is planned out 11 months in advance. And 
even though you have all this time in preparation, there's things you don't know that you don't know, and you fuck it up. Yeah, I, I still think this is going to do something for that possible whale circuit situation. Because the last I heard, like, construction was on again, but it was going to be slow, and it, was, it wasn't going to come in at any sort of deadline that met anyone's particular needs. But people are not going to forget about this. The British are obsessed with racing and speed in general. I mean, just go look up lands and airspeed and water speed records. The proportion of them held by Brits is insane. And even on top of that, just the amount like, held by certain families is crazy as well. It is a or na- world record attempt fatalities. Right. It's a it's a national obsession in Britain. It really, really is. For some crazy reason, it's just a thing. And the idea of I just Silverstone itself is so sacred, right? I can't remember what the name of the track is because every track has like a bit of a nickname, right? Like I think uh, was Assen is like the Cathedral of Speed, right? And Silverstone's something like the Empire of Speed or the the castle of speed, maybe it's something like it. it has a name like that, that, you know, it's, it's the, the track is held in very high regard and there's a lot of legend. There's a lot of story. There's a lot of history there and it would be very difficult to take a race, but this is probably the biggest disaster that's happened for that business, for that track in its entire history. I have to think, I have to think the amount of money lost on this. So, do you find out what it's called? No. I just I I'm just looking at the Wikipedia page and <laughs> it's such a silly thing. It's totally unrelated, but there's a town nearby that I completely forgot about, which was um the town of Toaster. Oh yeah. <laughs> which, if you saw the name written out, you would never guessed that it was Toaster. Yeah, it's like that day that uh, me and me and Mike and uh, and his wife Laura were we were driving in a in an old Austin Mini through the middle of the through the the middle of nowhere, and uh, Laura was just doing um, navigation with a paper map, and uh, saw a um, secret nuclear bunker on the map. <laughs> right? We're just like, what? Okay, we have to go there, right? If you're uh, if you're an American ever on vacation in England, go see Secret Nuclear Bunker. It's it's amazing. But anyway, so all right, I think we've uh, we've covered a lot in this episode, and it might be time to call it quits. It's probably a good idea. I think we're past two and a half hours, possibly. I don't know. So, um, any final thoughts? Anything? I don't think so. But yeah, yes. Oh yeah. If you feel like you can hold your own. In best or worst bike in the world, you should leave us a review on iTunes and send us an email telling us your iTunes username. And if we like your review and think it's amusing, you can be on the podcast. You know, I'm going to add to this because we haven't had a whole lot of response from this yet. And I think the reason is is that we're growing in listeners very, very quickly now. And I think we've got a lot of listeners that are only like five episodes in or something. And they're kind of waiting on dropping a review. 
which is fine. You know, I want people to wait until they really have their their thoughts figured out to to drop a review. That that's absolutely fine with me. I really want to have someone come on and do best worst bike with us. So I'm actually going to change it, I think. I think if you think you really really want to do this, just go ahead and send us an email at nokomotopodcast at gmail.com. But do not tell us what your best or worst bike is, or even if it's a best or worst bike. We don't want to know. You've got to just drop it on us. There has to be an element of discovery. It's important to the segment, trust me. And I think we just need to get someone on the show. And so all you need to do, rather than leave a review, just send us an email telling us, you know, just about you and whatever, and just more or less at random or maybe based on some sort of vague merit of the email, we'll select someone. And I think we're going to keep talking about this. And I think we should wait until after we come back from AIM. So we'll for third week of October, maybe we'll, we'll end up doing this and we'll have someone on. And then after that, we'll make it a review competition. But in the meantime, all you need to do is just send us an email, tell us about yourself, and just mention that you have an interest in doing Best Worst Bike. And we'll go from there. And then after we've got a little bit more of a stable listening audience, you know, since we're getting this big influx of new listeners right now, then we'll do the review competition. And I think that makes a little bit more sense. Because we definitely already have had people tell us we want to do, they want to do Best Worst Bike, but they haven't actually like left the review, which is weird, but I get it. Like you're a new listener. You're not sure if this show really is any good at y- yet. Right. So, so there's that. And with that, again, I'll just say one more time, leave us a review. Anyway, <laughs> send us an email at nokomoto podcast at gmail.com and stay safe and stay tuned. And let's run the outro. And I don't want to die. Just want to ride on my motorcycle. Mm-hmm, cold. 